STEMQ New England Northwest brings together expertise in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics from across the region. I'm Dr. James O'Hanlon, and here on the STEMQ podcast, you'll be hearing from leaders in industry, community, government, and universities about the groundbreaking innovations that are happening right here in regional New South Wales. This podcast is recorded on Anaiwan country at the University of New England in Armidale. Welcome back. This episode, I'm joined by environmental scientist and the director of Moss Environmental, Chanel Gleason-Wiley. Chanel, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. No worries. Now, Moss Environmental, it's an environmental consultancy, but I feel like environmental consultancy is such a broad, all-encompassing term. Does that mean you have to specialize in a particular field? Well, not really. So you're right. Being an environmental consultancy, you do have to, at some point, make a decision um, as to, uh, is your company going to be a generalist um, company or multifaceted, um, is another term that I like to use, where you do have expertise and, you know, um, people with expertise in a variety of different areas. So you can offer a very broad suite of services that most clients are after. Or do you go down the other route and actually specialise um, in something in particular? So I guess some some areas where other companies have specialised would be uh, erosion, sediment control, uh, or um, environmental impact assessment, uh, sustainability. They're, I guess, the big ones where I've seen uh, the companies diversify themselves by specialising in those areas. And at Moss Environmental, we are a generalist company at the moment with expertise across um, a broad range of categories. So does that come about simply because of the people you find or do you see a, a need in the market that you aim for? Well, where do you direct your own company? So for me and Moss, it is a, a bit of a juggling act between the fact that we're a regional-based company and where my own expertise lies. So when I first started the company, obviously it had to revolve um, around what my expertise set was. And that was um, just out of necessity um, because it was me who, you know, in the company, obviously. And then as the company started to grow and I've employed more people, we have managed to diversify into more of a multifaceted offering for, um, for what we do. But because we're regional, there is a, uh, a pretty um, big restriction on the types of people that we can employ and who can we get to come to Tamworth or Armadale to actually live in a regional centre and who want to stay long term. So there are restrictions um, by, I guess, by not having the, the pick of a huge pool of people. If um, you lived in Sydney or Brisbane, for example, that's something that you wouldn't necessarily have to struggle with. And I imagine there's just as much demand for the work you do, even though there's less people there to do it. That's right. So the way I like to think about it is a bit like if you're a regional GP, uh, quite often you have to be able to do a larger variety of things for your patients because they don't have access to the specialists in the country towns. And we're a little bit the same uh, in that we have to be able to uh, address a lot more issues and step outside of our um, niche areas more so than if you did work in the city where there's um, a lot more access to the to the expertise but in saying that we also have to be a lot more highly connected I think um, and have access to specialists um, 
or that expertise, whether it's through a university or through other companies uh, or through government departments. So we can draw on that to uh, bolster what we can offer as a company. And so being regional doesn't necessarily limit or narrow the scope of work. No, not at all. Not the scope of work, uh, just the we have to be a bit more broad minded about how we deliver it. So you've been doing this sort of work yourself for years for other companies. And at some point you decided to make the big leap and, and work for yourself. Really? What started that? Well, I've been working across a few different fields in environmental science uh so contaminated land management impact assessment mining and construction uh and uh, i was in a, a dido role so drive in drive out role from tamworth to bogabri and i did that for a couple of years uh, to finish off or complete a um, construction project and at that point I was given the choice by the company that I worked for that um, all the projects so the construction projects were being retracted back to the capitals around the, the capital cities in each state uh, because of the economic climate so I could either move to Sydney or Brisbane and continue to work you know on big infrastructure projects for that company uh, or I could be made redundant and this coincided with me being pregnant with my second child and um, I had zero desire to move back to Sydney. Uh, we, My husband and I had both grown up in Camden um, just outside Sydney and we um, we didn't want to move back. We like regional life. So made the decision that redundancy was the way it was going to be and it was quite daunting at first. I think a lot of people at that point in time um were quite new to what it meant to be made redundant and it was quite scary but it very quickly um became a fairly normal thing uh, for people to experience at that point because of the economic climate it was within the space of oh gosh like six to twelve months every second person I spoke to had been made redundant (laughs) from some job at some point um so it was no longer a scary issue uh, for me to deal with and uh, I just, I, I guess I took some time for myself at that point and stepped back from my career. Um, obviously, I had a brand new baby, so that was convenient mm-hmm. timing for that. But it also did give me that headspace to think about, okay, well, what do I really want to do? As much as I love construction and I love the boots on the ground approach and building something because that's, for me, that's a passion. I, just, I love being a part of a really cohesive team that is trying to build something quite quickly as much as I love that, um, I couldn't continue to do the fly and fly out or the drive in drive out roles that I had been doing for the past several years, and um, I needed to make a change. So that's what brought about the beginning of of my company was that that need for myself to create my own career, but also I'd been obviously working in um, the New England, um, you know, Northwest Slopes and Plains regions region for quite many years um, by that stage and had realised that the level of environmental consulting and environmental science which was available, so the expertise that was available in our region, I considered to be um, quite low. It, it really wasn't on par with what you could get from the, the people available from the cities, for example, and I was seeing that a lot of the time uh, as the client or in the client shoes I was having to get people to come from Newcastle or Sydney or Brisbane to come and um, fill these these areas the environmental um, roles that I needed filled 
and to you know for this again for the consulting type um, scientists to come and they had to come out of the the capital cities so I wanted to make sure that that was on offer here in our region Um, raise the bar really was was what I wanted Mm. yeah it's interesting hearing you talk about this idea of you being redundant was was a new thing at that time and I feel like even since then it's gotten more and more uh, uh, complicated in the workforce <laughs> I mean especially now you know post lockdown hearing about someone being a, a freelancer or a sole trader or a small business center is kind of almost more common than than not and you know that's that's speaking from experience but I mean that's one thing to go and work for yourself it's another thing to start a business where you then are taking on other people be they employees and contractors and whatnot what's it been like I guess transitioning from being an environmental consultant to being a a manager and a, an administrator and all those types of roles. Yeah, so you're right. I did start off where you could say uh, I could be classified as a, a freelance environmental you know consultant, and it was great. Um, to be perfectly honest, it, it was a good. <laughs> it was a great role. I got to do so many diverse things, travel around uh, when and where I wanted. Obviously project you know reliant but it were there was no shortage of work and Mm. it was great to be my own boss um so it was a really good I guess uh fit for me what I found was that uh being a single one person a single person uh as you know as a sole trader the projects that I could offer and what I could work on and what I could get involved in um ended up being quite limited I don't maybe if I stuck with it for longer I could have got involved with larger teams but in saying that I didn't ever want to um I didn't want to be a person who was uh contracting to a bigger environmental consultancy I wanted to be you know my own entity my own boss my own business basically um and there is a limit to how much you can offer when it's just you so that's when I made the decision that I wanted to start employing people and, and create a team and very naively thought, oh, I'll just, you know, go and put an ad on Seek and hire some people. And it's really not that easy. <laughs> um, so it's been a very massive learning curve for me over the last few years in developing my my soft skills and understanding who were actually going to be good fits for the culture in my company and um, how am I going to be a good leader and not just a manager. That's, you know, that this has been a, something that I can, I can look back on now and go, gosh, I didn't really know much when I first started, did I? Uh, I can remember reading Brene Brown in my first year of employing somebody, I think it was, and going, oh, gosh, she doesn't know what she's talking about. <laughs> All this sort of still skill stuff. Um, I, you know, I've got this, I've given this person a career and opportunities. They should be thankful. And, <laughs> and then, and now looking back and going, gosh, that was a, yeah, that was really not the right approach. Um, and now I, I read Brene Brown and I actually quite like what she says and, and think that it is very good advice. I mean, is it making you reflect on the fact that you saw the shortage of expertise in regional areas and thinking about how we can attract skilled people to these areas? What is there anything you can do? Yes, uh, definitely. Has I've been thinking about that 
for a long time mm. um, and how we can attract more skilled people to the regions and, and not just attract them but retain them. I think that's the issue because, uh, yes, attracting is difficult but um, that becomes harder or easier based on the employment market and the wider economic um, impacts of, of what's going on. So the attracting, I guess, is probably the easier part. It's the retention that becomes harder and it's just something where we need to be able to offer the people who want to come to the regions what they're looking for and we all I think up until very recently have assumed that they're all looking for a tree change and that Mm. everyone who will be happy to come to a regional place and they'll love the space and they'll love the you know the fact there'll be less people uh, they'll be able to afford a a bigger house on a bigger property (laughs) But maybe that's not it. Um, maybe, you know, just like me, um, people who move regionally don't want to settle for less than what they had. And I guess that can come in very, and a lot of different forms. Name will definitely understand that obviously you can't have exactly what you had when you're moving from a city location to a regional location. But the excitement in their career, the upward projection in their career, uh, the opportunities that are available to them, it's possible that they don't want to settle and that's something that we need to be able to address here in in the regions and how can we do that, especially now with so many people working from home and hybrid working situations. It's probably a, you know, it's been no better time ever that we can start to address address that issue and retain people in the regions, um, stop that brain drain. Yeah, it's it's a bit of a cliche that you move to the country and take on a slower pace and less responsibility. But is you're right. Is that necessarily what people want? We still want to be challenged. We still want to have meaningful work and want to want to get the job done. Mm. Is, yeah, is it true that things are just harder to get done in the country? Things moving slower and less resources and and I don't know what is it. I think no. I don't. I don't think that's true at all. <laughs> um, I don't think it's harder to get anything done. It, it might actually be easier in a lot of regards because we we have such a smaller network of people that we deal with that we know them more intimately we can actually have greater connections with these people so no I don't think it's harder to get anything done slower paced that really is very much dependent on what pace you set for your own life (laughs) my life is not slow um, in any way shape or form and that I, that's all obviously my own doing. So it really depends on what you want for your own life. Um, yeah, I guess I don't have the commute to work, which a lot of people do in the city and which I would have had if I'd stayed in the cities. Therefore, I'm a- able to actually get more done in my work mm-hmm. day because I don't have, um, you know, two hours or three hours of commuting time. So, no, I don't I don't believe that it's... Um, it's an issue really um, that makes it harder to get anything done. Um, communication and technology, I think, has a, still got a fair way to go in a lot of country towns. Armadale is very fortunate um, with your internet connection and Tamworth, a lot of our internet connection is really, really good. But if we're looking outside the regional centres, yeah, there's still an issue there with technology and you know, internet connectivity. But uh, just add another job to the things you have to do. You decided to start your own environmental science podcast. Mm. <laughs> We're releasing through Moss Environmental uh, called Beyond the Green Line. Can I ask, 
Is the green lion a thing? What are we moving beyond? <laughs> so, so my husband actually asked me exactly the same question. <laughs> He's like, so is this, is this supposed to mean something? <laughs> and it does. Uh, so, gosh, I have to <laughs> work back. <laughs> okay, so uh, back in, I think it was the early 2000s, there was a documentary that was put together about park rangers in um, African game reserves and, you know, wildlife parks in, in Africa. Um, and it was called um, – what was it called again? Uh, I think it was called the, the Green Line, just the Green Line. And the, it was talking about um, the the rangers that were putting their, their lives on the line to protect – the wildlife, particularly rhinoceros and elephants in these game reserves from poachers because um, poachers were coming in at night time and it was th- that was what the documentary was about, um, walking that, that green line uh, of, I guess, a form of almost activism in your own um, role, in your own workplace, in your own role and mm-hmm. what that entailed and what was actually meaning for these park rangers. So... In our context, we, we took that and we, we're we using the same, I guess, play on words to, to mean that we're, we're looking at activism and environmental science that makes a difference in the world um, as, as our green line. And the beyond the green line part of that is because we're not only looking purely at environmental science, we are looking at a, a broader reach. So we're looking at... Um, you know, or different types of STEM um, careers and what people do in those careers. And even at sometimes including um, the, the STEAM acronym, so agriculture in that, which um, I know there's a lot of variations. But You're going to annoy a lot of people with that. Yeah, yeah. So, so we, we, we have been taking a quite, a quite a broad approach um, <laughs> with science, technology, engineering, um, agriculture and mathematics um, and throwing environmental in there, into the mix listening to the podcast although it's aligned with your company you're not sitting having conversations about the ins and outs of soil chemistry you're you're tackling much broader issues i wonder what do you see as the the sort of guiding principle of the, of the podcast is it just let's find some interesting people or are you hunting down particular ideas so we are um hunting down people who have interesting stories with ideas that make a difference um, to, to change the world in, in one you know way or another and that are going to resonate with who we perceive our audience to be. So whilst we think that our audience um, is other professionals like us, it, it's also everyday you know, activists and, and people who want to bring um, a greater environmental awareness into their lives you know, at home or even into their workplaces. So... It's really trying to connect with a, um, a broad cross-section of society who are interested in environmental and engineering matters that are going to make a difference to the world. And why a podcast? I mean, you could have done a blog, you could have done events. What, what led you in this direction? Well, we did actually start with a blog. And <laughs> um, as much as it's, it's quite strange that I spend most of my days writing reports, you know, about different projects um 
in, in the realm of environmental science, obviously. So you would think that the jump to writing blogs would actually be quite simple. I struggled big time. And so did my staff. We struggled big time to come up with topics to write about. Um, so we, yeah, as I said, we started with a blog and it was just really quite slow going and we, we found some great topics to write about and I love the blogs that we've produced, but it felt hard and I was like, this shouldn't feel hard. This should be something that we're enjoying doing because ideally what we're doing with, with our blog is we're trying to engage with, you know, a wider audience and wider society in general and create change because you know, at heart, we are environmental um, activists. You know, we're, we're environmental scientists who've chosen this to, to do this as our career for our life. So we want to try and influence change on a broader scale. And that's what the blog should be. So the fact that it felt hard um, to me was saying, okay, this isn't working. This isn't actually going, isn't resonating enough for me to want to continue down this path. Um, so then my PA actually suggested going and doing um, a podcast and to be perfectly honest, I'd never listened to a podcast in my life before. Um, I obviously knew what they were because I'm not that old, but, (laughs) (laughs) um, but I didn't make a habit of listening to them. And I was a bit uh, hesitant at first because um, as much as I, you know, like talking to people, I'm not an outgoing type of personality. So therefore, the thought of having to talk to people I didn't know about their life and how they were changing things in in the world for the better um, through their career seemed really really daunting to me. So the the progress to the podcast was was quite slow, and eventually my PA just kept pushing and pushing very gently, and we got got the first one recorded. And I remember doing uh, finishing up the first recording and going oh my gosh I love this (laughs) (laughs) this is something that I find really enjoyable I love having these conversations with people and it makes me feel like I'm actually doing something good because I'm getting these people's stories out there and we're able to um I guess curate the this uh, this set of ideas, of broader ideas around environmental science and engineering, and what we can do, and maybe um, try to start thinking about different ways of doing things through connecting people from different backgrounds. So it was this epiphany of, oh my gosh, I thought I was going to hate this, I thought I was going to find this really really hard, um, but I said, okay, we'll give it a go. To wow, I love doing this, and I want to continue doing it. I mean, obviously, I'm biased and think podcasts are great, but you know, it, you're right. It is, and I'm I'm probably similar in that. It's quite difficult if you know I find a really interesting person. Yeah, yeah, I could just send them an email and say, "Hey, I'd like to pick your brains. Can I buy you a coffee?" But that just feels quite weird. But going mm-hmm. in and saying, "Hey, I have this podcast. Can we sit down and have a chat for an hour and pick your brains?" It's it's much more. I don't know. It's like an in. It's a nice way to to network and to really. Yeah, have deep, meaningful chats with people. Yeah, deep and meaningful is is something that I've really realized that we can do in a podcast. Um, people are far more reluctant, I think, to write the truth, you know, their full truth um, and be a bit vulnerable in an email or even over a coffee or over the phone. Um, and if you're then going to put it in writing for a blog, 
I just don't think you get the same level of trust mm-hmm. um, as you do with, with a conversation with somebody where the person can really get where you're coming from and you can sort of, if you want, you can start to drill down into um, a specific area of questioning and get them to open up a bit, a bit more about you know, specific ideas or topics, which you might not be able to do at least I can't do um, over you know email or just a chat um, mm-hmm. I tend to think that it's a bit more surface level and it's nice to hear you talk about your role as as advocates and as, as activists I guess maybe it was a, a while ago now but I feel like there's this this cliche or, or unfortunate stereotype about environmental consultants as being I don't know Yes, a thorn in the side of, of developers and managers and things. Do you think that still lingers a bit or is this a bit more mainstream and are things just being taken on board now? It definitely still exists. I've personally experienced it not that long ago. Uh, in some of the companies, um, and this is not just developers, this is across the board, uh, some companies who aren't quite as... Uh, far down the track in their their own development when it comes to EH and S, um, they it can be quite difficult to to bring them on board. And mm. um, yes, in that situation, environmental people can be seen as a thorn in the side, just like safety people quite often, <laughs> because they those types of companies see us as a cost, whereas. We can actually, there's a lot of, you know, literature out there, research out there around the fact that if you do have a good environmental program and especially, you know, definitely a safety program, that it actually saves a company money and not just through avoiding fines, but because of the way you work, you can actually um, design out a lot of, you know, superfluous costs that come into things like um, if you're, if you don't have good environmental practices for, your you know, erosion control on your site, for example, your site could be shut down for two weeks whilst you wait for it to dry out because you haven't diverted your water adequately mm. enough. That's a huge cost to a construction project and not just the, the day cost, but you can actually be looking at delay costs as well. So in those situations, um, we it's, it's very evident, and as I said, there's a lot of research out there that's proven that having good environmental practices can save companies money. But, um, yeah, there's still a lot of companies who don't quite uh, understand that. Uh, but coming back to, I guess, your, your question about uh, describing myself and my staff as, as activists, we're not going to go out there and chain ourselves to a fence in front of a bulldozer. <laughs> or maybe some, some of my staff might, but, <laughs> but I'm not going to do that. So not, it's not that type of activist that I'm talking about. It's more that... Um, we are using our our knowledge and our um, our I guess our background in the industry to advocate for the best environmental outcomes. And you know, I I love um, development in in engineering um, as well, and I do see that there is a need for it um, in lots of different situations. So I'm not anti-development. Um, I'm just pro making sure that the development is done in the, the best environmental with the best environmental outcomes possible. And yes, sometimes that, that means that I will be against certain developments um, or certain types of industries because they're 
you know, there is no way to do it in an environmentally sensitive or a sustainable way. Um, but, you know, that's just life, isn't it? You know, you can't, you can't make something green when it's definitely well and truly grey. So, <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, that, that's why I like to use that term. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess it's, I guess as part of marketing your own business is being able to explain to clients that, no, we're not just a box ticking exercise. We, we make you better yeah, in we the long no, run. We, we, you know, it's, it, you're right. It's not, it's not just um, bureaucratic tape that we're helping you navigate through. Mm. Yes, that is a part of it, but we are actually you know, making this a better project and saving you money and time and adding value to, to your product. And as part of your, again, broader contribution to these issues, you're recently appointed president of the International Erosion Control Association. How does that happen? Does that president? Happen? El Presidente? How does <laughs> no, it's Madam President. Madam President? <laughs> uh, so how does that happen? Well, very fortuitously, um, I, again, and very naively probably, I applied for the board of directors when I was um, maybe like three or four years into my construction environmental manager career. So I was probably getting towards the 10-year mark of my actual career. Um, And I'd been a part of the International Erosion Control Association, um, a member, for probably 12 months and liked what they were doing, thought that it was a great you know, new, um, young association and wanted to become more involved. And I just, uh, their, you know, nominations were coming up for directors. So I put my hand up um, and I was up against, I think, gosh, about 10 other candidates um, also got nominated for for the roles. And there was, I think there was two of us chosen out of the 10. Uh, I was just blown away by the fact that, I had my my peers who I I had no idea who they were, but you know, the, the, all my peers from my wider industry had voted for me to be a director <laughs> on the board. So I joined as the the third female, uh, the, yeah, the third female director ever to join the board, which was quite significant because um, there there'd been obviously a lot more men uh, on the board over the years. So from that was a pretty, you know, good um, thing for the board to have a fe- another female, I thought. Um, and one of the things that I got nominated on, I think, was not just because obviously of my sex, but also because I was a lot younger than a lot of the other directors. And I brought, um, I, I think, a youthful freshness, <laughs> I like to say, <laughs> to the youthful ideas to the board. Um, so, yeah, so I, I just um, nominated myself and wrote a little blurb about what I wanted and why I wanted to join the board and what I could bring and voila I became a director uh so I was I served an entire a full term which was three years as a director and then I'm now in my second term so I was re-elected by our by our members and um was elected as president uh, at the end of last year so um, this is my final year now um, on 
on the board of directors in my second term. So um, hopefully I'll get, you know, re-elected for, for a third term. Uh, but yeah, I have this whole year to, to be president of, of ICA Australasia. And that came about, I think, because I put my hand up really is what it comes down to. <laughs> I not, not for the president role. I actually didn't put my hand up for the president's role. Um, I did... I got nominated for vice president um, for 2021 and agreed to do that role. And at that point, realized that I had a lot to contribute to this industry and that I I did actually want to put more time and effort into my contributions um, and that I could make a difference um, using, you know, IECA as my platform for, for for change and for progress because I really saw a need for bringing sustainability into, you know, the um, erosion sediment control space and, and I'm still working on that. So putting my hand up and, and saying, yes, I know you've nominated me for vice president, I'm going to do it and I'm going to do it well meant that I guess um, maybe I, I don't know, um, the, some of my other directors realised that it was a role that I that you know I could do. So that's when uh, the next year, when the elections came up, I was nominated and accepted for the role of president. Um, and it's been it's been a roller coaster. And because it's my job to ask naive, silly questions, what does the International Erosion Control Association do? Is it a scholarly body and an overseer of things? What's what's its role? No, so we're a not for profit organisation that provides education to our members. Um, our member base is um, uh, environmental people, engineers, mostly um, people in soil science and in uh, the areas of water as well. So it was stormwater mostly. Um, so we provide a lot of education in the way of uh, field days, literature. Uh, we partner with different government bodies to produce um best practice manuals uh, for erosion sediment control, um, controls and designs and that sort of thing. And we, we also advocate um, government for, you know, better implementation of erosion and sediment control uh, management across construction sites and making sure that, again, we're continuing to raise the bar of what we expect in the industry for controlling um, erosion on our sites. So... That's, I guess, what we do in a nutshell. We also partner with um, another organisation and administer a certification program um, for industry professionals who um, want to become certified as erosion sediment control professionals. And, um, uh, yeah, that's what we do. So it's safe to say that sharing knowledge and stories and resources is, is pretty important to you and a lot of what you do it is yeah i guess in three ways i do it (laughs) so yes so people can find resources at ieca and on your podcast and i'm sure we'll be hearing more from you in the future yes i'm sure you will be on lots of different topics thank you (laughs) (laughs) thanks so much for joining me no worries thank you for having me thanks for joining me here on the stem q podcast Stay tuned to hear more stories as we work to empower STEM innovation through the STEMQ precinct. 